Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, January 18th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, administrators at University of Mississippi Medical Center say a 2007 law could provide the means to open a burn center at the hospital. Then college students engage in observations about activism and reconciliation on the National Day of Racial Healing. Plus, this week's History is Lunch takes a look at the state's Department of Agriculture and Commerce. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi has only one Tier 1 medical facility in the state, and administrators are asking lawmakers for funding that would both preserve and expand services. Dr. Luann Woodward is Vice Chancellor of Clinical Affairs at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She tells our Kobe Vance the hospital needs financial support to hire more nursing staff, expand programs, and develop a new burn unit. We've got still an issue from the standpoint of nursing workforce. There's, that is still a challenge, um, as well as the increased cost and inflationary pressures that everybody is seeing. That is really um, the pain point right now in health care, just the supply cost and all the impact of inflation that we're all experiencing. What are some of the things that the medical center is looking for this year in terms of appropriations from the legislature? So... I am um, still in the um, time frame where I remember the 2017, maybe in 2018, budget cuts that we had and the situation there. And so, um, first of all, my ask to the legislature is that we are maintain level funding and that we don't have any cuts. And I think the state is in a good place right now, so that's probably just my leftover paranoia um, speaking to that. But certainly support of our programs that we have um, that are line items at the medical center, our child safe center, our cancer center, our mind center. We've got a number of really important programs that depend on that support each year. The R- Mississippi Rural Physicians and Dentist Scholarship Program is um, a program that we house at the medical center. It's not necessarily a medical center dedicated program, but we house it there and um, feel very strongly that that's an important program for the future healthcare workforce in the state of Mississippi. We've talked to a number of the legislators who supported us last year in the $50 million that they designated for um, 
for hospital infrastructure and operating room infrastructure and renovation, and um, that was vetoed by the governor. So I am hoping that the legislature will once again support us with that amount of money with funds that we can then direct to other projects. We're hoping to get some support to build out an adolescent psych unit. That is something that we have a great need for for all across the state. Um, we've got a few child psychiatrists, and we've got a child psychiatry unit, and of course we have adult psychiatrists, but there's a real need for that adolescent psych unit, so um, we're hoping to get some support for that. So we've got a number of projects kind of on deck that we are talking to them about, particularly programs that should benefit all of the state and all of the citizens in Mississippi. Talk about the burn unit that y'all are looking to uh, build up right now. That's right. Um, can, can you give us the origin behind the bill that y'all are using to push forward <laughs> with this? So um, you probably are aware that back in October, Central uh, Mississippi announced that they were closing the burn program that they had. And I have to admit that I was unaware, actually, that there was legislation passed in 2007 um, stating that Mississippi would have a burn unit, the Mississippi burn unit, um, as it would be named, at the medical center. So, um, and I, I just don't know the timeline perfectly well about the time that the Greenville program closed and then when Central opened their program, et cetera. I, I, um, I just can't speak to that. But when we looked at that legislation, we felt, you know, compelled and are excited about actually developing this burn program. We already have a lot of the infrastructure that you need. We've got plastic surgeons, a very robust team of plastic surgeons. We've got the trauma program. We have lots of critical care beds, um, around 250 critical care beds at the medical center. And we've got wound care nurses. So we've got a lot of the infrastructure in place. I think it makes sense for the Burn Center for Mississippi to be um, at the only academic medical center in the state. And we are working with the Department of Health on the accreditation process for that. And um, I'm, I'm very excited about that and feel very positive about that. And then lastly, we've seen hospitals across the state facing financial struggles, a financial crisis that they've been calling it. And wanted to get your thoughts on how the medical center is stepping up in ways to be able to help make sure that communities and even in rural parts of the state have access to care. So that's a tough one. There are lots and lots of challenges across the state. All the hospitals are feeling the same challenges I mentioned earlier about cost and inflation and all the supply cost increase, just everything that we are, um, that we have to have to do our business. We've had increased costs. The increased cost around the labor workforce and the challenges in getting and recruiting in all the staff that you need. We do have all of our beds open, but I know many hospitals don't. Um, I'm thankful that we do. We're still short nurses. We're short about 200 nurses. This time last year, we were short a little over 300. So I'm glad that we're now down to 200. But, um, but you know, the, there was a nursing workforce shortage prior to the pandemic. The pandemic just really accentuated um, the pain points that we already had and worsened some of them. So all these hospitals across the state are facing these same things. In many instances, the facilities are aged. They are 1950, 1960, maybe 1970 facilities, but they have not kept up with modern technology, et cetera. So they've got aging facilities. 
there's a huge cost around the electronic health record. So for a small hospital to bear that cost and to have all of the um, information technology that they need to support that, it's, it is just, the costs are just skyrocketing. So there are many, many challenges, and it's not just one thing. You know, lots of people have asked me a similar question to what you ask, and I think everybody is wondering, is there a silver bullet? You know, what's that one thing we can do, that button we can push and then make it all better? But it's multifactorial. There are lots of reasons that we have the challenges we do with healthcare around the state. We very much at the medical center want to be a part of the solution, but we need a statewide solution. It, it is... We can't be the solution. We want to be a part of the solution. We take lots of transfers. We have partnered with hospitals all around the state, in North Mississippi, on the coast, and everywhere in between to send some of our specialists to their communities to help support what they have in their community. And, and we've used telehealth. When you look at our telehealth sites across the state, we have some sort of telehealth site in every county in the state. We are expanding our telehealth into the schools, working with the Mississippi Department of Education, um, getting telehealth into the schools. So we are trying to do all the things that we can in a creative and cost-efficient manner to expand our reach and expand our services, and when needed, take their patients. But really what we need is to bolster the services in the communities. Um, I think the hard truth of healthcare economics in the world we live in today is every small community and every small town cannot support a hospital. And that's a sad truth, but I think that's the real truth. Now, that does not mean that every small community and every small town doesn't need access to some type of care. They do. What we've got to do as a state is kind of reimagine what that looks like. Dr. Luann Woodward is Vice Chancellor of Clinical Affairs at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Coming up, college students engage in observations about activism and reconciliation on the National Day of Racial Healing. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The National Day of Racial Healing is prompting college students to look closer at reconciliation. Activist and student Macy Brown spoke on the Millsaps campus yesterday, where she answered questions from students about activism and racial healing. Brittany Wilson who is a junior, served as interviewer for the event. She tells our Lacey Alexander she hopes students walk away empowered to enact change in their communities. I am here just to, you know, show the Millsaps community, you know, local social justice going on and just being um, more better advocates for our community here. What does this event mean to you? What do you want people to walk away with from this event? I want people to walk away motivated to support their communities, whether that is Jackson or, you know, somewhere in Little Rock, Arkansas. I want people to 
see themselves in Macy Brown and also be able to say, I can be someone and help my community as well. So this is the day of racial healing. What to you does racial healing look like and how to you do we get there? Racial healing first starts at home. It starts, you know, in our hearts and of course, but also better actions towards each other. But then also recognizing that not only is it an individual thing, it's also a systemic thing. So also making sure that we can provide support for others, but also making sure that we can create those spaces in the different institutions that we have. And so racial healing there is a personal, but also a physical construct that we have to build upon in today's time. So we are on a college campus. We are more so focused on students and student-aged people here. Why are people your age, why is your generation a great place for racial healing to start? Well, one, we're the most influential right now, but also we're the most influenced. And if we can influence ourselves to be better with um, different people of different races, different creeds, different backgrounds, then we can provide some extremely phenomenal, meaningful change. Brown shared the message that reconciliation is only possible through tough conversations about race and when people are honest with themselves. It's why Millsap Senior and Executive Director of Programming, Timothy Alexander, organized the event. All the activities and everything we do here, that's what I do. I'm over that pretty hefty job, but I do it. Um, that's, a, that's my main title. So, yeah. So this event was on the National Day of Racial Healing, which occurs every Tuesday after Martin Luther King Day. What does that day mean to you, and what does racial healing look like for the people of Mississippi? Well, being someone who was primarily born in Memphis, uh, that's been a pretty big day for me for a while since I can remember. Um, coming in Mississippi for school and everything, I've seen what racial healing looks like here, especially being in the Jackson area. There's a heavy African-American population here. And so every year when we do something like this, it's been very, it feels like they're, they hold it to a higher degree that, than I guess they would in Memphis. Because Memphis, we're already, there's already a community there. We already know what this day means to us. And so here, I, I like the effort that they put in based on like Mississippi's background and everything. I like the effort and everything that they put into the day. They try to make it as important as they can, which I'm really appreciative of. So especially as an African-American myself. So, yeah. So why is it important to have activists like Macy present to discuss things like this on the day of racial healing? What does she and people like her have to contribute to days like this? For days like this, it's important to have people like her, especially like people around like our age to show so much activism about such a big issue because especially around people like our age in our 20s like in college or even she said she did in high school at that point of our lives we feel like we're not as powerful to do anything about it because it feels such like a big grandiose thing but having people like her come it shows that it's much more in our control than we think that it is and so it brings more awareness to the situation and brings the power back into our hands which I really like um, seeing it right in your face and seeing someone taking action makes you want to also take action. So I like that I have people like her around <laughs> to do things like this. What steps can people of all races take to get us closer to racial healing and reconciliation, do you think? Um, it was honestly what she was saying about being honest, having an open dialogue, um, especially being in some environments. People will talk around the issue using way more politically correct terms and kind of walking on eggshells. We need to be having more open and honest conversations to really get to the root of the issue so we can really move forward all together. The college is situated near the Midtown area of Jackson. Senior Isabella Sewell went to high school down the street with Brown. It's reminiscent of just seeing like the people that I live around and the people I've always known my whole life like 
get the acknowledgement they deserve and get to really talk up front about things that have impacted them their whole lives. And what steps do we need to take to reach racial healing in this state? I would definitely say it's getting rid of the divide. Uh, we have to stop saying like the rich part of Jackson and the poor part of Jackson. Like it's, it's Jackson. We are, as far as everyone else is concerned, we're a unit. And so we need to stop really pushing aside the lower income part of Jackson. And we need people to stay in Jackson. We need to make them want to stay in Jackson by really, you know, fixing up the things that inconvenience everybody, like the roads. And if someone who maybe isn't black wants to help contribute to racial healing, what is your advice to that person? Just listening. Um, if your friend is saying that they feel a certain way about something that was said in a class or that a certain topic really makes them uncomfortable or how it's approached makes them uncomfortable in a conversation, just take that in and listen to what they're saying. And, you know, if there's somebody who's like, hey, I could just really use a vent, just let them. Um, it's more just being open and accepting critique, changing things about the way you view the world, taking in, like, what you really think and what you've heard from other people and deciding where you lie on that. The event was one of three held in Mississippi observing the Day of Healing. Coming up, this week's History is Lunch takes a look at the state's Department of Agriculture and Commerce. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Department of Agriculture and Commerce was founded in 1906, but during its 116-year existence, much of its history was passed down through informal methods. That's changed now that Claude Nash, editor of the Mississippi Market Bulletin, has teamed up with Ag Commissioner Andy Gibson to create a written history of the department and they are presenting some of their work today during History is Lunch. The two share more with our Michael Guidry. We all have history that we know about. It's, it may be in our mind or it may have been told to us, but it may not have been written down. And we were talking, I guess, about a year ago or so, maybe a little more, about some of the fascinating stories of the Department of Agriculture and former commissioners and staff that work here. And I asked Claude one day, I said, uh, have you, has anybody written this down? And he said, not as we know of. I said, well, that's going to be your job. We're going to come up with a, a book that, that that chronicles the history of this department and the good work it's done since 1906. He recruited uh, Hannah East and Jared Vardaman to help put it together, and they got it done in record time and did a great job. I'm proud of the work they've done. Was there anything they uncovered um, as y'all were working together to put together this history? Anything they uncovered that that, that surprised you? Well, yeah, there was. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I'll comment on two things. One, one of them is just a historical note. When you go back and look at the first commissioners, we may know their name, 
but there was hardly anybody left alive who knew anything about what they did and what they accomplished. So they they were able to go over to the Department of Archives and History and pull a lot of news articles and the the, the urgent things of the day that the Department of Agriculture was involved in, uh, for whether it was uh, the uh, uh, cotton bowl weevil, the eradication that was very critical to the, our state's uh, survival and our industry of cotton and agriculture, or uh, the establishment of dairy standards and things that we take for granted today. The department was crucial in in uh, in, in conducting and putting in place back then. But the other interesting thing that w- that we uncovered was the realization that a lot of the same issues that we deal with today they were dealing and struggling with back then. So and still working on the same thing, still finding solutions to challenges that we faced as a state for, you know, over 100 years. All right, so, Claude, as, as the author and, and editor, you're going to get the hard questions here. And um, and uh, I'm curious, you know, looking at, you said that since it's been around since 1906, it's a it's official forming the, the Department of Agriculture and Commerce. And putting that in the context of broader Mississippi history, uh, how much does this work, this history, explore the relationship uh, between uh, agriculture, but also like the socioeconomic uh, structures within Mississippi? From from the agency standpoint, we feel like we, we nailed the timeline pretty good. Uh, as we discovered before the agency was created in 1906, it was <clears throat> the title of the time was uh, actually the Mississippi Department of Agriculture and Immigration. And so then they went to the course of legislature, had that name changed when the uh, agency was uh, uh, born as the Mississippi Department of Agriculture and Commerce. So they replaced immigration with commerce. That, that shows you right there what the agency was having to work with back then, talking about the, from the slave time and all that, coming out of the war and all, so that had to be changed. The only thing difference was back then, of course, you know, their tools, their resources, they didn't quite have like what we have. Uh, one of my the best the, my favorite commissioner in the book is the third one, which is J.C. Holton. Uh, he began the uh, started the Mississippi Market Bulletin, which is the newspaper that I'm editor of, and he started that because back then, out of coming out of the Great Depression, there was no income for the small farmers around here who sold products from their farm. They didn't have that cash market outlet. So if you were selling plants and seeds or livestock or hay, whatever commodity that you grew on that farm, there was no outlet for it. So he started the Mississippi Market Bulletin, a, a buy-and-sell agriculture newspaper, which was free to advertise. They didn't have to pay for no advertising, and that took off. That was a huge deal for the farmers and the landowners back then coming out of the Great Depression. And then as you roll on over into Commissioner Cy Corley in the 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, that's when agriculture got back up on its feet. That's when uh, the cattle and cotton, all that was soaring at that, at that point in time. And what about looking at the relationships between agriculture and labor? You're talking about the workers and 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 things like that. How much of a of a of a deep dive into that does it go, or is it kind of just looking at the, the history of all the, the the various commissioners? Yeah, we we didn't go that far into it. We we stayed pretty much just with the agency. We worked off of exactly what our agency does today, and we took that and went back into time to add it with that era. So we didn't we didn't really get into like a workforce. Uh, labor, you know, you know, follow those issues of what labor was like or intense and uh, share crop. And we, we didn't go into that that route of it. Okay. In your research and uh, you know, looking looking back at all these past commissioners, are, are there factors, are there things that led to uh, these gradual changes in time over where Mississippi farmers and where the department um, you know, supported the, the shift in commodities? 
Yeah, one one thing, is, and which is really sad, one of the biggest industry or commodities uh, at that time was, of course, the milk and cream uh, uh in the early 1910s, dairy was huge here in Mississippi. Uh, the the landscape was just a common place for dairymen all throughout our state. Today, the dairy farm there is really no longer dairy farming like it used to be. There's a few of them still out there, but not many at all. So as dairy uh, went away back during that time of the 60s and 70s, so just like in the 80s when Commissioner Jimbo Ross opened up the door for the catfish industry. Uh, catfish became the one of the big uh, commodities. So today, as it is based off of that, I believe uh, uh, poultry is number one, timber is number two, and soybeans is number three rating-wise. I mean, you could go back in time and say, well, here, dairy was number one. You know, you could do it like that. So it, it's really interesting how the commodity, the crops have shifted. Also, the alternative uh, crops that are out there now, you can go from blueberries to blackberries, all these uh, uh, greenhouse tomatoes. So it's it's just amazing the shift that it that it it uh, made. That's Commissioner Andy Gibson and Claude Nash. They'll be presenting more on the history of the Department of Agriculture and Commerce during History is Lunch today at noon at the two Mississippi museums. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.